I'd love for you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. If you need a Bible, there's plenty on the table at the back. Feel free to go grab one. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep it. And we're going to open up to the end of Acts chapter 2, page 1597. All right. uh, Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, so over recent weeks, what we've been seeking to do is to explore the characteristics of the early church and the reasons that you can describe them as being radically devoted to God and to one another and what was going on in the life of the community. We recognize that it was a unique time in the church's life, these heady days at the very inception of the birth of the early church. And in a period of what you would, you would describe as something like revival, the the overwhelming presence and power of God flooding into the community life and forging something new that was full of passion, full of life, full of um, enthusiasm. I think maybe uh, you catch something of the communal excitement in a World Cup season, even though that's only short-lived, but what they were experiencing had none of the disappointments and <laughs> all of the... All of, the, all of the upsides, and um, it wasn't, of course, across national boundaries, you know, as much as us, the English folk in here are very glum now, aren't we? But um, there wasn't those divisions. There was something miraculous and extraordinary going on here, something spontaneous, something beautiful. And what I've been trying to show you is that the, the early church's spiritual life was characterized by certain practices, devotions, um, that they were, particularly we noticed the five things that Luke lists early on, that they were devoted to teaching, fellowship, communion, the breaking of bread, which means that they were gospel-centered, they were devoted to the cross and the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, to prayer and generosity. Now, I don't think that that list is in any way exhaustive of what constitutes a healthy church, but one thing you can say about those things is that there is, um, to borrow a phrase um, from another field, there's a kind of irreducible complexity. What that means is that you can't take away any one of those parts and still have a healthy church. If you took out the devotion to the word and teaching, it wouldn't be a healthy church. If you took out fellowship or generosity, any one of those elements, you couldn't have a healthy church. There's a kind of irreducible complexity. All those elements are absolutely fundamental, essential, absolutely cannot be withdrawn from the life of the church for it to be healthy. And this is one thing that you notice about the early church. One thing that characterizes them is that they are full tilt, leaning into all the things which are, are essential for church life. And what we notice as well is that the fruit of it, the fruit of this devotion, is the joy that you see in the community. We noticed it at the end. It says that they, were, they had glad and generous hearts, favor with all the people, and God was growing the church. Because there was such a contagious life in that 
local church, it was growing. And no one could stop that. No one was forcing that. It was a, there was something magnetic and irresistible about it. So you have these practices, and you have the fruit of these practices. But what I want to do today is kind of connect the two things and, and try and understand, help us understand something of the way that they engaged with these practices as a church. In other words, the kind of the character or the quality, the, it's, you know, what you would, you can't really describe on paper, but what you would feel if you were among them would be true of them. And I think the reason we have to do this is because you can have two churches, maybe on the same street, doing the exact same things. And one church is full of life, and full of the Spirit, and full of joy, and full of fruitfulness, that is growing, and the there's a present sense of the presence of God. That there's a, what's described here, that there's awe among the people. And the other church could be doing what looks on surface to be the same things. And there's death. There's coldness. There's a lifelessness among it. Some of you probably have experienced that in your past. You maybe grew up in or were exposed to lifeless church. And it may have been, you know, despite that, that you even came this morning that somehow you had to overcome your prejudice to even arrive through our doors this morning. And I hope that God can just move in your heart to help you see that there's something more beautiful uh, in the church and what Christ is forming in his people than maybe what you've experienced in the past. But there we have a phenomenon. Two churches doing the same things. One's full of life, one isn't. And I want to think about the differences. You know this from your own lives. Maybe if you've spent any time studying, you can, you can be matched with another student have the same books, the same lectures, the same uh, IQ maybe even. But one of you does well and the other doesn't. And you can discern differences. What are the differences in the quality of the way you're going about life? And I think the same is true in church life, that there are differences from church to church that I want us to think about in terms of what was going on in this early church. And I'm particularly interested in, in this verse, verse 46, where it says that day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. What we're trying to to understand is something of the the communal nature of what was going on here. Because the weird thing about a church, any given church, is that there's a kind of communal spirit in a church. Um, A kind of something in the air, something in the culture of a given church, which... It's partly made up of all the individuals, you and me and all of us in these seats today, but it's also something about the gathered community. And uh, sorry, I'm not going to harp on at this, but you can think about the analogy of of football because it's been in all of our attention recently. So, um, you know, a football team is is somehow greater than the sum of its parts, isn't it? Sometimes you can have a team with amazing individual players who sometimes just don't gel well and... This was the experience of all English boys' childhood, watching the, the, the national team. Amazing players separately somehow lost it on the field together. And the same also can be true in reverse. You can have a team made up of very poor individual players, but something in the communal quality of the team makes them extraordinary and makes them gel, makes them uh, have an amazing culture that gives them an excellence to excel beyond other teams. And the same is true in a way in churches, that... Part of what I'm saying applies very directly to you personally as an individual. And I think it's very important that when you're listening uh, to to God speak, that you think, well, how does this apply to me personally? 
Because in a sense, you know, our church is made up of individuals. But at the same time, what we're, t- what we're trying to, to touch and describe and capture here is the life of a whole body together. And I want to show you three things that I think are evident in the early church that's a sign of the work of the Spirit and for which we need to strive and ask God to come and create in us. And here, here are the three things we're going to be thinking about. There's what I would call a kind of communal commitment. The regular rhythms and integrated involvement. So let me just break those down for you. Here's the first. There's a communal commitment. We live in the age of non-commitment, don't we? We live in the age where commitment has been given the title of a phobia, a fear, right? We experience it in the workplace. It's one obvious place. It's very few of you enter a job now thinking, I'm going to be in this job for the rest of my life. Um, I've had about 12 to 15 jobs in, in my life. Most of them were short-lived and not the greatest career choices. They were just um, sort of getting pocket money. But when I became a pastor, I knew this is it for the rest of my life. And when I planted this church, there was a sense in which I wanted to say, I'm here. Unless God takes me elsewhere or kills me, or whatever he wants to do with me, uh, I'm here, we're putting down roots, and this is it. We're committed. But that's an unusual thing, isn't it, in our day and age? Most of the people you work alongside with Monday to Friday, you don't expect to necessarily work with them in three to five years' time. It'd be odd if you did, right? It's an unusual thing. So we have this, this, this phobia of commitment and this awareness that maybe there's something better out there, and it applies in the job world. It applies in the relationships world as well, doesn't it? Um, you know, my experience in pastoring is that the number one problem that you confront when people are trying to navigate doing a relationship, guy and girl, and looking towards potentially being serious and maybe marriage, is the fear of commitment and the doubts that begin to afflict one or both. Now, I think 10 years ago, this is, this is more just the guys who struggled with this, and now it seems to be guys and girls, and there's no, there's no real distinction here. But you, generally speaking, I know that if people are struggling, usually there's one or other who's wrestling with the whole issue of commitment, which is weird because uh, like 50, 60 years ago, that wasn't an issue. I know my aunt had close to 20 proposals of marriage uh, from guys. I don't know what kind of a flirt she was, but <laughs> do you think people were ready to commit even if they barely knew you then? It was a very different mindset. So something has shifted quite radically in the way we think, isn't it? It applies to our jobs, it applies to our relationships. Uh, it applies in, in other parts of life. One of the areas just in just ordinary social gatherings and friendships. You know, I think Facebook has built this into their kind of party planning thing. You invite people to a social, they can click maybe or interested or something like that, can't they? Which basically means we'll see what else comes up and we'll see if there's a better option on the table by the time this comes around. I don't want to commit myself to it. And of course, you know that commitment is a beautiful thing when you see it. You know, it's true in all those examples I've just listed. You know, if you, if you have the mindset of commitment to your place of work, it changes the way you think about your work. You're no longer looking over, look, left, right, looking at the, the grass on the other side of the fence, thinking if you could do better elsewhere. You're thinking, I'm in this for the long term. I'm invested life, heart, soul into what I'm doing. And if you know that that's true of the people around you, it changes the way you experience uh, your work life, but how much more something as vulnerable as your relationships, you know, guy and girl relationships especially, when if you know that the other person is ready to promise to you, commit to you, without a wavering shadow of doubt, 
It transforms the relationship. One of the things I was saying in one of our Salt Live events when we looked at the issue of love was that actually I think people have got it the other way around. Everyone thinks that you've got to have this thing, this intangible thing called love in order to commit. And actually, biblically speaking, it's way more complex than that. Actually, the more that you, if you choose to commit, love grows within the boundaries of commitment. And there's something very potent about the decision to be a committed person, not least in, in, in allowing love to flourish. And of course, it's true also even just in something as, as mundane as organizing a, a party. You know, if, if, if 20 of your friends say, we're in, then that thing is not going to be so lame as it would have been otherwise, right? If people are kind of on the fence and not quite sure. Now, I, I want you to understand this in the light of the gospel. One thing that is at the very heart and, and at the bottom of our faith is the belief that God is a committed God. That he's committed to us in love. He was all in when he gave Jesus to us. There was no hesitation on his part and there was no sense in which he was wavering or, or hedging his bets. It was the greatest gift imaginable to give his son to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that he loved us when we didn't love him, when we hated God, God loved us, which shows us the nature of his committed love. It tells us that he's adopted us into his family. I don't think there's any more beautiful, earthly picture of what committed love looks like than the picture of adoption, because it's saying that you are now mine. No matter what happens, you belong to me, you're part of my family. And this is what the Christian faith is built on, God's committed love to us, that even if we're unlovely people, God brings us into the family and he becomes our father. We think about how his love is totally unbreakable. Who shall separate us from this love, Paul asks. Nothing can separate us, life, death, angels, demons. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's, a, it's an unbreakable bond. He is passionate for you. Jesus talks about his commitment to his people in this way in John 6. He says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So if Jesus has called you into his family, he will never reject you, saying. He says a bit further on, he says, this is the will of him who sent me, in other words, God's will, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus has this unwavering passion towards every individual who becomes part of his family and part of his church such that he is totally committed to you regardless of how your commitment looks on a day-to-day basis. Most of us as Christians know that we struggle, we waver, our faith goes up and down. Some of you have wandered for days, weeks, even years away from God. You have to be, understand with certainty that God's commitment to you hasn't changed in all that time. And if that's true of the gospel we believe, don't you think that the character of the gospel bleeds into everything that we are and do as a people? And so when we're coming back to the nature of a church, what a radically devoted church looks like, and what personal discipleship looks like, or what the whole church should look like, nothing is more obvious to me than when we read this passage, we see that these people have this quality of being totally committed communally as a body together. It's how Luke opened. They devoted themselves. There wasn't a person among them who was holding back or on the fringe or hesitating or folding their arms and waiting to be impressed. 
It says that they devoted themselves. And then in the verse we're looking at, it says day by day. There was something totally life-consuming about this commitment to the church and to what it means to be a disciple together, right? And I think about, well, how, what would it take to form a church like that in our context? I think all of us could, would admit that it would be an unusual thing. It would be an unusual church because it's going against the tide. It's going uphill. We live in a context where there is the prevailing mentality of consumerism, which I've been mentioning because it so goes against the spirit of this passage. Consumerism which asks, what is in it for me? And which approaches the whole question of commitment with, well, I'll be committed so long as I get something out of it or it meets all of my needs. That's the consumerist mentality and that is what is pervading the world in which we live. Again, it's a fairly new phenomenon. But can't you see how it changes the way you think about spirituality and discipleship? So to have a church which is committed is an unusual thing because of our, communi- uh, our consumerism, also because of the transience of the city we live in. It's one of the things that we have to wrestle with as a church, as a local church in the heart of a metropolis, a big city, is that people are coming and going constantly. And we recognize that to have a committed church is an unusual thing because of that. And also because of just the general spiritual apathy, which is, I think, you know, if we were to take an average of where people's faith is in Britain today, I don't think that you'd, you would think that it's a particularly impressive thing, right? A Christian is not a particularly passionate person. If we're talking about averages. So to have a church where there is this unbelievable passion to commitment to one another and to God such that every individual is leaning in in a way that is all in, like God is towards us, would be an unusual thing. And yet I am utterly convinced that God can do it. Partly because the gospel changes you. When the love of God, when you feel his, his ever-present, relentless love towards you, it changes the way you respond. You open up to him and to his people. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was poured out on this church here in Luke, and in, in the book of Acts, was the reason that they were committed like this. God moved in their heart and a fire was stoked in their belly such that the entire orientation of their lives was changed. Almost instantly. And we have the same Holy Spirit in us. And I'm just speaking in hot air because I've seen this over the last few years. Individuals who come into our doors, uncertain, afraid of church, maybe afraid of God, running away. And God, by the power of His Spirit, has begun to rewire hearts. And bring and woo people back to himself. I think the Spirit produces in you a captivation for the church of God as well. A love for his body. When he does that, it's amazing what people will sacrifice. What they will give up, what they will forego to see the glory of Jesus made visible in his people on earth. So friends, this is one of the qualities which they went about these, this radical devotion, there was this communal commitment. And I want to I commend that to you. I want to encourage you. Are you a person who is committed to the body of Christ, to a local church, this one or whichever one is your church? 
in such a way that people could never question where your heart lies. That's one thing. Here's a second. I think the church life was characterized by this kind of regular rhythms. Now, think about this in the context of life. The whole of God's creation teaches us that life abides by rhythms and cycles that are essential, actually, to all living things. Think about yourself. You have a heart that's beating in rhythm. God made you this way. I was doing a little bit of back of the envelope mass this morning and thinking, your heart is going to beat at least, if you live a decent life, a decent length of life, then your heart's going to beat at least two and a half billion times in your lifetime. If I'm wrong, tell me afterwards. It's fine. You have rhythms that govern your biology. The rhythms of eating. You think you generally need to eat three times a day, or five times a day if you're Malaysian. You have... <laughs> there, are, there are habits of sleeping. Um, Sleeping is not optional, by the way. And anyone who tells you that they can do with little sleep is normally grossly deluded. And uh, as this has been proven scientifically in labs. But you know, sleep is so essential to every living mammal that, you know, even, even the mammals that live in the ocean have to sleep. Do you know how a dolphin sleeps? It has to sleep half of its brain at a time so that the other half can keep itself alive by swimming and breathing and you know, it's amazing. God made it that way. So it sleeps the left half, then the left goes to sleep, and it sleeps the right half of its brain. It's phenomenal. But it just shows you how essential rhythms are to life. You have to have rhythms of the heart, of eating, of sleeping. Rhythms of days and years and generations. All of life is governed by rhythms and cycles that are unavoidable. People go crazy when they only experience daylight on end, or only night on end, when the rhythms are removed from their life. And so the reason I'm stressing this is because I don't think you can ignore this. You know, think about this. You can't, you can't decide at the beginning of the week, on a Monday, let's say, to eat your calories for the whole week. You're going to eat 14,000 calories or whatever, or more if you're a hungry f- person. Um, you're going to eat all your calories in one day. You know, even if you were to try, I guarantee you, the next day you'll feel hungry again. Because <laughs> it just goes straight through you, doesn't it? It's like you don't, your body doesn't work like that. You can't ignore the rhythms of life. Same is true with sleeping. You can't choose that you're going to sleep 10 days straight at the beginning of every month and then stay awake for the next 20 days. Imagine what you could achieve if that was possible. Your life would be very different, but it's just not possible. You can't, you know, what do they recommend? It's like exercise uh, three sets of 20 minutes um, each week. So it, it works out to be 52 hours of exercise a year if you're diligent and faithful to that. But you can't exercise for 52 hours at the beginning of the year. Do like one of those Iron Man things or something and then just sit on the couch for the rest of the year. It doesn't work like that. Your life, your whole biology, your health, your well-being is governed by rhythms and cycles. And this is built into the way God created his world. The interesting, the bi- interesting thing the Bible shows us is that It reveals God's design, and also this is true of spiritual life as well. So the Bible uses these biological rhythms to teach us about about spiritual life. You think about how it talks about walking. Walking is a rhythm, it's a pace, a tempo. And it's how 
a number of times in the Bible, it's described, spiritual life is described as walking. You are in tempo with the Holy Spirit, in direction with the Holy Spirit. That's how you grow as a person. You walk with God. You think about eating and drinking. There are so many verses through the Bible that, that use these pictures of, of something daily and periodic and rhythmic to capture how you grow spiritually. The Psalms talk about God being edible in a sense, how that, that he is, you consume God, and there's a sense in which eating uh, in, in uh, fellowship with God is how you grow in the spirit, drinking, drinking in. Jesus says that we, we drink this, this living water that gushes then out of us, and we, there's a sense in which your whole spiritual life is, is marked by these rhythms as you grow. The Bible even imposes rhythms upon God's people for them to grow. Think about the rhythm of Sabbath, one every seven days, which in the New Testament is called the Lord's Day. And there's a sense in which God is saying that day belongs to me. Not so that the rest of your life can be lived however you want, but so that God can mark you one day in seven so that his possession of you as a disciple then bleeds into the entirety of your life. In the Old Testament, there were rhythms of festivals that punctuated the year and reminded God's people that they belonged to him. There were rhythms that spanned 50 years in the Jubilee cycle where all the slaves would be freed and all the, all the debts would be canceled and all these kinds of things. And you look at the way God structured the rhythms of spiritual growth and you begin to understand the power of regular rhythms in a community's life, in a church's life. And I'm laboring this point because one of the things that is so clear to me, uh, pastoring where we are here in central London, is how easily we neglect just the basic rhythms of church life. And I want us to just think about that negatively and then positively. Think about how you can't front load spiritual nourishment. You can't binge on spiritual nourishment, however you would do that once every so often, and then do without for long periods of time. You can't last long on your kind of, in inverted commas, food stores, your fat stores in the spiritual life. You think if you go for any length of time without the regular rhythms of prayer and of reading, of gathering with God's people, then you begin to starve and you begin to wilt and you begin to wither. Your strength is depleted. You think about how you can't expect that you will grow instantly, but rather understand that this is, this is a rhythmic thing. And so to think about how this is important positively, and you see it in the life of the community in Acts 2, and also this is something we need to grasp, is it firstly you have to cultivate patience in the Christian life. It can take years to develop skill and strength to grow up into maturity as a man or woman of God. I heard once, I don't know whether it's true or not, and I didn't bother to fact check, but apparently, um, it could be an urban legend, but apparently the longbowmen of England in the, um, you know, the days when we were fighting the French uh, on the battlefields rather than the football pitch, that never, um, apparently the longbowmen of England, you know, they were marked for having these very long bows which they would go into battle with and which gave them victory, for example, in Agincourt. But they... The amount of strength it required to pull back the string on one of these bows required that they began training from a very young age. 
even from the age of about 12. And the, the archers would have um, a disproportionately strong shoulder on one side of their body because of the amount of force and power it takes to pull back one of these strings on a bow. And it takes years of dedication and devotion to develop that kind of strength. It's, you have to cultivate patience. You think about this in the spiritual life. I remember listening to a preacher once describing the Bible reading habits of two of the greatest um, preachers of our, of our nation who were both in this city in the last century. One was John Stott and one was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, they both were contemporaries. Both had enormous stature. They were giants uh, spiritually in our context. And uh, this man was saying both of them were devoted to the exact same Bible reading plan uh, throughout most of their lives, which was the Murray McShane plan, which takes you through the Bible. Four chapters a day, you read the whole Bible once a year, the New Testament twice, and Psalms twice. You think, well, that's actually very achievable if you're moderate pace reader. It's about 15 minutes reading a day. But it means that in the course of their lifetime, they've read the Bible something like 60 to 70 times. You think, well, the accumulated growth that comes through patience when you are devoted to the regular rhythms that God has ordained for us in order to grow, like eating, sleeping, is a potent thing over time. Cultivate patience. Here's another thing. Understand the gradual effects of consistent rhythms. If you're to compare two substances, rock and water, and ask, well, which is harder? The obvious answer is rock. And yet we know that water through persistence can erode rock, carve great channels through rock. Look at the Grand Canyon, an enormous channel that's carved out through the gradual effects of consistency. And amazingly, you even see this in the lives of saints in the Bible. Think about Jesus. It's an amazing thing that he only began his ministry when he was 30 years of age. Because it meant that he spent the vast majority of his life on earth preparing through daily habits of obedience to the Father, growing in intimacy with him, studying the scriptures, learning his craft, which would be to be a preacher, so that when God was ready and had prepared him, he would be unleashed before the world. Even Paul spent, you know, he spent all his formative years studying the Bible to be a Pharisee, but when God saved him, most uh, commentators think that he spent about 15 years in the, in the wilderness in Arabia preparing himself to be a preacher of the gospels, re-reading the scriptures to understand them all, the Old Testament, in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ, who we now recognize to be the Messiah. And there's something amazing about understanding the consistency of, of plodding and of rhythms in the believer's life as an individual, and how much more as a church. And so I want us to, to understand the potency of being devoted, all of us, to communal rhythms. That's what you're seeing going on in the book of Acts here. That they devoted themselves to these practices. But as Luke puts it, day by day, they were attending temple and breaking bread in their homes. And when you think about what it means to, be spirit, you know, to exercise spiritual devotion... Mostly, most of the spiritual devotions you see in the Bible are communal devotions. They're not necessarily individual ones. It's not that God, you know, we talk these days about having your quiet time. This is, you know, a way of describing a Christian's kind of alone time with God. You know, people use different exp expressions. And I'm not saying that that's in any way wrong. But most of the biblical emphasis is actually on 
corporate gatherings, on the rhythms of the week, on the rhythms of prayer, on the rhythms of worshiping together, of breaking bread together, of hearing the word of God taught together, so that as we walk in step and are passionately committed to these regular rhythms, all of us begin to grow up in the faith. And that's what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. It's one of the, the secrets, as you, as you, if you wish, of what was happening among them, of this extraordinary spiritual life which is growing. Here's the last thing. Their spiritual life was also characterized by integrated involvement. It's a clumsy title, but I'll try and explain what I mean. When you look carefully at what's going on here, you can see the balancing of parts. Let me describe some of the balancing of parts. You have the large and the small gatherings of the church life. It says that they were in the temple and breaking bread in their homes. So you had the great gatherings of thousands that were taking place, and then the small gatherings of of being in one another's homes, of opening the doors and having spiritual life together behind closed doors. There's the balance of the vertical and the horizontal. Luke tells us that they were were worshipping in temple, of course, but also this breaking bread in their homes in a relational fellowship, dedicated way, was a way of doing spiritual life. It wasn't just church on Sunday. It was... There, was a, there were these, these horizontal relationships that characterized their, their walk with God. And there's also the balance of the, what I kind of want to call the spiritual and the mundane, although I think that's not really the right way of describing it, but you can see them doing the kind of so-called spiritual activities, going to church on the Sunday, as it were, and then just eating together throughout the week, the kind of mundane rhythms of life. Now, what, what I'm trying to help you to see here is it it points us to this, this fundamental truth about the Christian life and discipleship, which is that God, God wants the whole of your life in every dimension. That what you're seeing here about, if you were to pick out any one of the members of that church in the book of Acts and look at them, you would have seen that every dimension of their life was governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Whether it's their relationship with God, their horizontal relationships, the kind of the spiritual aspects, the mundane aspects, all of it was governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's this integration of parts rather than having separated lives which led to amazing power in the life of the community. You think about your body, extraordinary thing. But part of the reason your body, one of the ways you can understand health in your body is that it has integrity. Every one of its parts is functioning for the benefit of the whole. And some diseases are actually the fragmentation of your body so that one part does its own thing and no longer cooperates with the good of the whole. You think about a disease like Parkinson's and how it leads to involuntary tremors. Suddenly, there's a difference between what a person wants consciously and what their body is doing. The same is true of epilepsy. But the same is true, really, of any disease. It's the, the breakdown of, of parts. That what should be an integrated whole is becoming fragmented. And the same is true in discipleship. It seems to me that one of the great keys for growth in godliness and personal discipleship is this element of, of a kind of balance in your life where every part of you is governed by the rhythms of God and of his ways. But there's no seam. There's no join. 
is totally united and, and has integrity, which means oneness. Do you think about this in the life of the early church? If they'd only had the large gatherings, if we only have the Sunday gatherings, there's anonymity and hypocrisy often flourishes in that context where people don't really know each other. But if you only have the small gatherings where people, you know, some people have done this these days, they kind of jettison church on Sunday, well, church should just be every day and we should just gather in homes or in coffee shops and that kind of thing. If you only have that, what you end up with is a myopic and inward-looking little community. If you only have the vertical, which is to say, my spirituality is only characterized by my relationship with God, what you end up with is, is some, you know, in the spirit of the age, just an individualistic spirituality, isolation, maybe a detached spirituality from the needs of the world. But if you only have the horizontal, which is to say, the only thing you really care about in church life is fellowship and friendships and all that kind of stuff, then you do away with the weight and the power and the life-giving power of the gospel. If you only have the spiritual activities, as we like to term them in, in church life, you end up with this separation, don't you? Where Sunday is your spiritual day and then Monday to Saturday is, is, is yours to govern however you wish. If you only have the mundane, if you think of church as just, no, I'm doing church all the time, then what you end up with is kind of no mountaintop, no challenge, no power in your, in your Christian walk. And so what I'm trying to stress for you, friends, is when we, look at, when we look at the church in the book of Acts, what we see is this unity together in which every individual experiences the power of God touching their life from top to bottom. And where every believer is walking in step together as one. And in so doing, there is pulsating life of God in the church. And I'm, I want you to ask yourself, does your life show Christ's lordship over every part? Or can you see a separation? Whether you call it a hypocrisy, or maybe not as strong as that, just you, know, you haven't quite understood how this part of your life should be governed by the lordship of Jesus. Does your devotion to Jesus bleed into every part of your waking life, even your sleeping life, such that the normal rhythms of your day involve God and involve God's people and are opportunities for growth? Or is there a separation in your life? I think this is so crucial. I think it's so crucial. Because we've been born and bred in a context where nominal Christianity is the norm. Which just means to say in name only. Where people think that to be a Christian is, is really just to fulfill certain essential duties of church attendance. And what it leads to is this fragmentation of life. Where people think that they've ticked it off because they've been to church sometimes just for an hour on a Sunday and complained that the seven-minute message was too long. And then the rest of their life is just pursuing whatever they want. There's no contact with God's people. There's no fellowship with God. There's no growth. And then it's reflected in how money is handled, how ambition is handled, how relationships are handled. And there's nothing, I think, that's more despicable to Jesus 
than nominal Christianity. It's the kind of faith which, in the book of Revelation, he described as being lukewarm, that he wanted to spit out of his mouth. He prefers you to either be totally cold and just be honest with yourself and say, I don't really know Jesus, or totally hot, which is to say there is this integration of your entire life where every part of you belongs to him. The only place we actually see that perfectly is in the life of Jesus himself. Christ calls for it in us, but we also know it's impossible. There will always be division in our lives. There will always be separation. There will always be ways in which we're, we're fighting against the flesh and the devil and the world. But you look at Jesus and you see the perfect man, the perfect human, whose life was completely integrated. Which is to say that his emotions, his thinking, his body, the rhythms of his day, every part of his life was moving as one in devotion to his Father. I only do what I see the Father doing, is what Jesus could say. Friend, as you surrender your life to him, the Savior who purchased you, who is now living inside you by the power of his Holy Spirit, Jesus wants to mark your life with this kind of integrity. He wants you to be committed and to have the rhythms of growth and to have this integrity of life so that your humanity becomes less fragmented and more united so that you become more whole like the man Jesus Christ, more human. Can we pray for that? Let's bow our heads and pray. I want to hand out the communion in a couple of moments. Our pattern is just to hand it along, take a bit of bread, rip it off, eat it, take a sip of the wine, pass it along. And the reason we do this all the time is to remember the perfect man, the, hum- the perfect human whose body and blood were were broken and shed. And his, the fragmentation of his body was so that we could be made whole. That's the way the paradox of the gospel, the upside down way the gospel works. And what Christ is calling for in you today, the heart of what I'm trying to communicate is that Jesus wants all of you. Heart, soul, mind, strength devoted to him and to his people. So as we pray, I want to encourage you, if there are elements of your life you need to confess to God, ways in which you need to repent, commitments you need to make to him, then do so now. So that as we take the bread and the wine, it will be like the seal of the gospel on the resolve of our hearts to walk with Jesus. Father, we come to you. My passion, Lord, my hope, my desire is that the Holy Spirit would inhabit this church much as you inhabited that Jerusalem church all those years ago. So that the apathy of our hearts would be overcome with passion for Christ. So that the flakiness of our culture and the way we've grown up would be overcome by devotion, commitment, covenant loyalty Uh 
so that we would learn to walk in step with your Holy Spirit, not sprinting and then collapsing, not erratic in our walk, up and down, in and out, but conscious of the moving of the Holy Spirit each day in your gentle way to cause us to grow up in maturity bit by bit, layer by layer. I long to see, Lord, a church where the passion for you reaches into every corner of our church life so that there are no unintegrated parts, Lord. That our whole being is devoted to you. Lord, a people who, as you inhabit us by the power of your Spirit, you are lifting us to understand your ways and communicate your gospel and embody the kingdom here on earth. We ask you, Lord, to revolutionize our spiritual life, to revive us, to start in every one of us as individuals, but Lord, to bring us into unity around your passion for your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.